Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am joined by Dr. Wilfred Riley, a professor of political science at Kentucky State University. He's the author of Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, as well as the book Behind Him, Hate, Crime, Hoax. Dr. Riley, thanks so much for your time. Well, thanks, as always, for having me on the show. Good to be here. One of my uh, favorite authors of all time is Thomas Sowell. I follow you on Twitter, and I know you like to uh, discuss uh, a lot of uh, the research you've done uh, on uh, his work. He has so many books. The first one that came to mind is The Vision of the Anointed, Self-Congratulations as a Basis for Social Policy. What do people need to know about The Vision of the Anointed? Well, I, I think The Vision of the Anointed is probably the most important Thomas Sowell book, actually, because it talks about the phenomenon that we're seeing today of sort of the universally wrong expert. Um, what Tom Sowell does in The Vision of the Anointed is contrast two views almost of human functioning. There's what he calls the tragic vision, which is the idea that human nature is hard to change and knowledge is hard to get. So institutional rules tend to exist for a reason to some extent. This is Chesterton's fence kind of stuff. Um, I mean, so one of the few debates I ever really lost was with a Jesuit priest. Uh, we were on stage. I think this was a men's club or some similar event back in law school. And the priest said, oh, well, you're one of those edgy new atheist guys, right? I would imagine this is like 2005. You don't think there's a God or any source for these rules, these moral codes that we're discussing. And I said some ver glib version of, yeah, that, that's about right. I'm not sure I'd agree with that today. But the priest then said, well, would you, would you agree, though, that there are laws against things like raping women in your tribe or unprovoked cold-blooded murder, child abuse of the worst kind across almost every society? And I said, yeah. And the audience said, yeah. And he said, well, then, regardless of whether or not you believe in my version of God, doesn't it imply that these are true to some extent, that it would be very foolish for someone to remove that norm, whether or not you can explain why it exists? I mean, that's... 10 points on the debate board or whatever, but it's also just a valid point that the institutional rationales that exist in society usually exist because they've been developed over a long period of time by kind of social interplay between very intelligent people. Um, I mean, the Chesterton's fence example is very famously like a guy in the original example. It's an upper class British man, but he's walking through the woods and he sees a fence. It's an old broken down fence between two properties. And there are two responses. The initial response is, well, why don't I tear down that fence? It's a bit of an eyesore. But then the second is, well, why don't I first figure out why the fence is there? Go knock on the neighbor's door. We haven't talked in a while. Does he have vicious dogs? Are there, are there fighting bulls in the yard? Like it would be very stupid just to get rid of that as ugly as it is without knowing why it's up. So that's the tragic vision that human beings are not bad per se, but flawed predatory monkeys. It's hard for us to get and believe knowledge. It's hard to come up with totally original ideas. And when you have institutions, whether you're talking about the quantitative academy or the Catholic church or the family that have performed fairly well for millennia, you want to kind of treasure those. You want to unpack and see why they work as they do and whether they can be improved, but you certainly don't want to destroy them rapidly. So that, that's one of the visions of humanity that he outlines. And that's the basis, I think, for a rational conservatism. And going a little beyond Saul here, if you're thinking about how you would change in this world, change would be incremental. I mean, if you think there's a problem with racism, 
you would take steps to, within your society, minimize racism. Uh, one thing I've generally done in boss roles is have people on the HR team just blank out the names on resumes, for example. So I have no idea. I'm, I'm mildly racist, as it turns out, from the IAT test and so on toward black people. I, I slightly favor black people. I'm a black guy. And I actually don't think that's cool. Like, I'm mildly proud to be black, quote unquote. But I mean, I live in Appalachia. It's hardly a privileged white area. So I'm, I'm actually not at all positive about the idea of discriminating against, say, poor whites. So I just I just take the names off. I take the addresses off. So I have no idea where this guy's from. All I'm seeing is engineering degree, Tulane, and such and such a year or whatnot. And racism, essentially, with that mild incremental change, becomes impossible. I suppose that someone could have been a member of the Puerto Rican, you know, political scientists association or something like that. There might be outlier cases, but 80 plus percent of the bigotry you could engage in is gone with this incremental change. So that that's what the tragic vision would lead me and I think would lead most other people to support. But I've been rambling on about the tragic vision for about five minutes. That's actually not what Tom Soul devotes the book to. He says that the alternative to the tragic compilation of knowledge over time vision is the vision of the anointed, which is the idea that sort of we're in a new era. We have an academy that's able to do things that it was not able to do before. So knowledge is being developed very rapidly. And this rapidly developed knowledge allows us to change people very rapidly, one. And it also makes experts far, far more intelligent than the majority of people. So when you're talking to someone with a master's degree in sociology, you're talking to someone who has the almost magic knowledge that's coming out of this new field, qualitative sociology. So the vision of the anointed is sort of, we have new knowledges now that we never had before. These knowledges are concentrated in experts and these knowledges allow the very rapid change of mankind. So new knowledge concentrated in experts, rapid change of mankind. And these visions lead to dramatically different perceptions about outcomes. So if you believe in the vision of the anointed, what you would want to do is allow the experts from the studies fields, from sociology, from the newer fields that we're just developing to reshape the institutions that we have in society. The old insights of the Catholic Church are Copernican or worse, right? They, they don't apply anymore to this brave new world where we have the Marxist dialectic and where we have Stata and R and so on. And what Sol says to some extent is that this is an empirical question. You can look at whether the insights of sociology are really anything more than recycled human thought of the kind that judges and you know, women's circle leaders and so on have been engaging in for a thousand years. He doesn't think they are. I don't either. But you can analyze this to some extent and you can compare the results of policies implemented using the vision of the anointed with the results of policies implemented using the older tragic vision. And so the book is actually very empirical. I mean, it, it does this. There are three or four major sections. He looks at criminal justice policy, for example. The vision of the anointed um, in this situation focuses on the idea that we now have these fields, psychology and psychometrics, that understand that there are complex mental reasons people commit crimes. So the way to reduce crime is to, A, improve society so that people no longer feel oppressed and outcast, and B, specifically treat the mentally ill to make them better people, which should be easy to do because of the new knowledge that we have. And he contrasts that with the tragic vision, which is that the way to reduce crime is to have a policeman beat your ass if you commit crimes. Like you get a slap upside the head and you get tossed into county jail for a couple of days. 
So is moving away from the older model, i.e. reducing the ability of the police to engage in corporal punishment, reducing the length of sentences, cleaning up jails, will that increase or decrease crime? One of the points he says that I often, that I crib word for word often when I debate online is this is not a moral question, it's an empirical question. And so he spends about 40 pages on this. And obviously, as you know, as an intelligent guy that's read some books in this field, what happened was that when we moved toward the theory of the anointed, that we should spend more money on social work, social services, sentences should be shorter, we should convince people the criminal justice system wasn't racist. What happened was that crime surged dramatically. It didn't drop at all. It turned out that the majority of criminals, I mean, the 60% the majority of criminals are still white. They had never found the criminal justice system to be racist. The thing that was constraining them was simply how likely they were to be arrested or beaten or locked up. And as that likelihood dropped, they began to engage in dramatically more crime. So you saw Irish American, Italian American, Hispanic Caucasian crime rate surge. Uh, even among black criminals, I mean, there might have been you know, a sense of feeling that justice had increased, but that was counterbalanced by the idea that it was now easier to victimize. And most of the victims turned out to be other black people. So you saw black crime surge. So Sol points out, and I mean, I'll kind of shut up after this because we've, we've gone for a couple minutes on this, but Sol points out that you can just really measure this. I mean, between 1963 and 1993, crime increased about 500%. We sometimes forget this, but the new normal for crime that those of us that grew up in the 90s saw where people would get on trains and you know, muscly have sex in big cities or where people would paint graffiti. You walk up the stairs in New York or even Indianapolis, there's graffiti all over the walls. You know, that, that, that one movie, Kids, the movie New Jack City, that was a very new era. Even in a tough black or Irish neighborhood in the 1960s, you would never see that. Police would prevent it. Fathers would prevent it. It was, it was not a thing you saw. But we saw that for decades when we were kids and now we're seeing it again following George Floyd. That's that's the result of conscious policing decisions that were made on the basis of these well-intentioned but asinine ideas. So the, the vision of the anointed goes through this chapter by chapter. I mean, it goes through criminal justice, but then it goes through sex education. It goes through economic policy, so on down the line. It's a, it's a fascinating book. There is a uh, section here. It says the first order of business for the anointed has been to turn the tables on society which must itself be made to feel guilty for what it complains of. In this section, he talks about how uh, whenever people see a problem, they will blame society as opposed to the more tragic vision, which will blame the individual. It, it's amazing how the, the more you blame society, the less each person feels like they have a vested interest. So you won't have the police officers or the fathers forcibly stopping people from, you know, doing graffiti on the subway. They'll just say, gosh, the system really needs to change. Well, my hands are clean because it's actually the system's fault and colonialism and a uh, number of other things. He then uh, has a uh, page where he goes through a series of stages. He says, a very distinct pattern has emerged repeatedly when policies favored by the anointed turn out to fail. This pattern typically has four stages, crisis, solution, results, mm -hmm. and response. Walk us through why this is important. This is this is my favorite graphic. And again, Sol, Sol is sometimes criticized for not being empirical enough. This is a very empirical book. Um, so he breaks down the four stages of every one of these proposals. We just saw this with police defunding. So the first stage is that you identify some kind of crisis that supposedly exists, like crime. I'll, let's actually do police defunding. So the, the crisis that supposedly existed 
during the George Floyd, Jacob Blake, Michael Brown early years of the quote unquote racial reckoning was that there was a mass wave of police killing young, innocent men, especially unarmed black men. I think that's a fair cross-racial summary of it. We saw these cases, including the three I've mentioned, Trayvon Martin, even Dylan Noble on the white side. These are on TV every day. Um, so this is the idea. The police are out here massacring people, especially black people, especially unarmed black people. The average liberal I read recently, um, Skeptic Research Center, I believe, thinks that between 1,000 and 10,000 unarmed black men alone are killed by police during a typical year. So this is the crisis that is invented. Mainstream media outlets, NGOs, academia, all of these institutions currently lean more than 90 percent to the upper middle class political left. And they all kind of transmute and they promote this story. And we see this all the time from Trump is a Russian spy to interracial crime against black people to systemic racism in medicine. These narratives come constantly down the pipeline. And that's what that's what the triple OG is referring to in this book. But so in this particular case, the storyline is, you know, 10,000 unarmed brothers a year are killed. The reality, of course, was that this never happened. That's a clause in Sowell's great paragraph describing the crisis. He says most of these crises are not real. By the 1950s, crime in the USA was at one of its lowest levels ever. It was declining for black men. It was declining for Irishmen. It was declining for Italians. I imagine those three groups probably accounted for half the crime in the country at the time. It was declining for men overall. But you declare the crisis. And in this case, we declared that the crisis was police murder. So step two is the solution. You implement all of these policies. I mean, over the past couple of years, we've seen major police departments like New York City, which is often a bellwether, reduce their stops by between 35 and 50 percent. So that's the response to the crisis. You, quote unquote, defund the police. Uh, cities like L.A., like NYC, this never reached the levels that right wing media said it did. But it was very real. I mean, you saw police departments cutting their budgets by five, by seven percent. More to the point, you saw them reducing infield stops, which is really the key variable here, by more than 30 percent. So there's a direct response. Like we're going to take those officers on the street. We're going to put them out into community policing. We're going to put them on sort of the engaging with black leaders beat. Because the important thing is that we stop massacring these innocent people. We rebuild our relationship with the black community. And that's when you'll see crime drop. So again, you have direct counter predictions here that can be measured. The prediction of those with the tragic vision is that criminals are in general bad people. More than half of them are whites and Latinos who don't give a damn about any of this civil rights stuff. And that when you stop policing in these diverse slum neighborhoods, you're going to see a surge in crime. That's the tragic vision. And to anyone's dad on the golf course or the basketball court or in the barbershop, it would be as obvious as two plus two is four. The prediction of the anointed is a little more complicated. They always call our prediction simplistic, but it's basically that, you know, as people learn to trust the justice system more and as the massacres stop, people would be more comfortable engaging with the police and the police would be freed from simply harassing black innocents to go chase rapists and so on. And so you'd see a drop in crime. Uh, and the assumption there is that the police do spend a great deal of time engaging in racist violence that has nothing to do with policing. That's a baseline assumption of the vision of the anointed. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Uh, and so then you get into step three. So step two, the solution is cut the stops by half, cut the budgets by 7%, devote the police to community policing. Pure anointed solutions. Step three is you look at the results. And Sol has a great line here where he says the policies of the anointed are implemented and lead directly to, you know, negative result Z, 
like what we've been told all along will not happen, but what everyone in the hood, in the mostly Caucasian suburbs, you know, on the athletic fields that I've talked about knew it would happen. Everyone knew it. Everyone called it. Um, and that's what happened. I mean, in 2020 and 2021, we saw murders soar above 20,000. Murders are the most reliable crime data uh, for the first time since like 1994. And I mean, that, that's the year before broken windows policing. I mean, it's, just, it's an unbelievable, predictable pattern. As soon as we stopped doing the things that we'd been doing in black and poor white neighborhoods, crime went back to exactly the point where it was except with a slight increase that reflects like the 6% or whatever increase in population. It's exactly what you would have predicted if you were kind of a cynical businessman on the tragic side, the which I am. But anyway, so, and then step four is that the, the anointed will deny that the obvious pattern is the obvious pattern. And we're seeing this now. I mean, I frequently debate online with, I've mentioned the sociologist Rod Graham, the Dr. Monsakita, some other people. I don't think these people are bad as men, but they're good representatives of kind of the, the left-wing school on this. Um, the psychologist Pat Lockwood is kind of in the middle, will sometimes jump in. And what these guys will say is, well, it's it, you're being too simplistic, Riley. Like, yeah, I know we saw this. I know we saw these shifts back, but you have to understand they're also COVID effects. And so you, you tend to get lost like to publish a research paper on this, I'm probably gonna have to adjust for all this bullshit. Forgive me. Like, you know, but was it the disease effects, you know, and five years later, we'll know, of course, it was the fact that we pulled back the police, but by then the story will be gone from the headlines and you won't be able to get your paper cited in the times or anything. So it's, it, it's just the, and I mean, first world problems there. I mean, that's the ultimate first world sentence. Like your paper won't get its recognition, but I mean, like it, it really is this consistent pattern, right? It's just like, we the anointed says one thing like teaching kids about hard body raw anal sex is going to make them have sex less because they will respect their bodies more and they'll understand a range of options and everyone that hooked up in high school straight or gay is like no it's gonna make them have sex at parties now that they understand how to do this the only reason even girls said no to anal was that lube and so on wasn't involved this will dramatically increase the frequency of this type of sex and the, this will then be tested. Five years later, you'll look at reported rates of sexual intercourse type A among high school and college women. It will have surged by 30%. And then there will be a series of denials about how, you know, the feminism in our culture could also explain this. This occurred, that's, that's just a sideline example, but it relates to Sol's comment on uh, sexual education. He talks about STD rates in the book. Like all of these things follow the same very predictable pattern. I don't think it's a coincidence that this pattern is predictable. He wrote a, another great book called Civil Rights, Rhetoric, or Reality, and there's a section in here where he says, before crediting either political policy with economic gains, it is worth considering what trends were already underway before they were instituted. In the period from 1954 to 1964, for example, the number of blacks in professional, technical, and similar high-level positions more than doubled. The reason that's so important is because I'm ashamed to say it literally never occurred to me to say, well, what was happening before the implementation of policy X, uh, policy Y? I think Seoul is just so good on issues like that, and it was just totally new for me. Anything with regards to uh, civil rights or uh, the ability to empirically test theories that uh, you learned from Thomas Seoul? 
Yeah, well, I think Seoul, no, I often say that for a tenure track professor at a state university, like I'm a, I'm a solid A minus methodologist. I mean, I'm definitely good enough to get an academic or think tank paper published. I mean, I, I know what I'm doing. I think Seoul's about at that same level. His methods used to be cutting edge. He's still quite good, but he's moving on toward age 90. But I, I think that beyond just the tricks, because neither of us is doing like eight regressions that take eight pages to print out or something like that. What's so great about Seoul is that he, and I try to do this myself when I teach methodology. I, mean, I am a professor of the subject as well, so we both do know what we're doing. But I think what's so great about Seoul is that he very clearly explains from a pretty politically neutral standpoint. I mean, Seoul is on the right a little bit, but he's a registered political independent. Just the tricks that everybody uses and how you can get around these tricks and make accurate, effective scientific predictions. So, I mean... The first thing that we talked about is the importance of effective modeling. So we just went through his model of how things almost inevitably collapse after excited proposal by the anointed. Another point that Sol makes that may be a question later, so I'm not going to go out, go off on this for too long, but it's just the importance of adjusting for things. If you're doing regression, which I think you, he, and I are all at, at a level to do, the sort of analysis you see in most serious papers, what you're doing is trying to compare equivalent people so you can see the effect of one thing, like racism, if that makes sense. So, I mean, if you're running Stata or R, you're looking at your dependent variable is, for example, something like income. And you might be interested in the impact of prejudice on income. But to find that out, you're going to adjust for age. Um, the most common age for a black man, as I always say, is 27. For a white man, it's 58. You're going to adjust for region. Minorities are far more likely than whites to live in the South or the Southwest where wages are far lower. This is mildly controversial, but you're going to have to adjust for test scores. I think the gaps here are cultural rather than genetic, and there's quite a lot of literature on both sides. But the simple reality is that if your SAT is 950, you're going to have a different job than you would if it were 1118. Those are the averages for blacks and for, I believe, one of the Asian groups, respectively. So when you adjust for all of this so that you're comparing a black guy who's 27, went to U of I, got an 1100, lives in Missouri, with a white guy who's 27, went to U of I, got an 1100, lives in Missouri. If you see a 3% difference in income there, that's likely due to racism. If you simply find an, and even there, it's questionable, or what fields are the two men going to, so on. But if you find an initial starting point, 30% gap in the wages of these two guys, and that's as far as almost all journalistic reporting and about half of the social science papers ever get, that doesn't mean anything at all. So one of the things I learned from Seoul is just always adjust, always be honest with it, set up your model, explain what's in it, and put in the variables other than racism that likely explain the gaps that you're looking at. And in terms of the, the particular question that you asked, oh yeah, pre-existing trend lines, this is another one. Like, I guess the simplest way to say this would be, what is your, what is your beginning year and why? Mm -hmm. So you very often see, when people are looking at the civil rights movement, you very often see people beginning with the year 1964, which of course was when we passed that great accomplishment, the Civil Rights Act, or the year 1967, which is when affirmative action began. That was the National Philadelphia Plan under Mr. Nixon. And saying, well, since that point, Black incomes have increased substantially at a 4% annual rate. 
The problem with that, as Sol points out in the book is Civil Rights, Rhetoric and Reality, as you said, is that black incomes had been increasing at that same 4% annual rate for something like 35 years before this happened. The, the idea of the black family as being entirely Southern and lower class hadn't been true for decades. I mean, that, that's like Gunnar Myrdal era stuff. I mean, the Great Migration had already happened. The Harlem Renaissance was in the 1920s. Blacks in many Northern cities made as mem- much as members of many oppressed white groups, so on down the line. So obviously, I do think the civil rights movement was useful. It did help out those brothers, quote unquote, who were still stuck in the South, who were facing certain obstacles. But you can't just say what made the African-American community successful was a decision by the government to pursue policy X. What actually made the black community successful, and indeed many of those white communities I described, the Irish, for example, migrated outside of the tenement core areas of cities where there was very little for them. They began to seek out jobs in the suburbs. They began to explore construction, even farming. These were often very libertarian individual choices by people that began to move these groups forward. So I think, again, where you're beginning your frame has an effect on what you think groups and countries should do going forward. If you think that the government pulled Black people or Irishmen out of poverty by making major national scale moves, your assumption will be that with, for example, Mexican-Americans today or something like that, that's what will be required. It's always the state. We need to expand the state. If you simply change your beginning year in the model and realize, oh, the state had nothing to do with this, the law was probably a good idea, but 95 or whatever percent of the increase came about due to natural declines in bigotry and migration patterns, that leads you to totally different starting assumptions. I mean, that actually begins a a really valid conversation where you can ask, does it make sense to take away people's freedom of association to produce the other three or four percent in in economic gains there that's a that's a pretty significant question i mean modern civil rights law dramatically limits what you can do i i couldn't operate a club if it used any kind of resources from a city anything like that that catered to for example upper middle class black men i mean the moment it came out that we had rejected not that i would probably but i mean the moment it came out that we had rejected a Caucasian or Asian or something like that applicant. I mean, the lawsuits would begin, the business would be destroyed. Again, not something I want to do, but should you have the right to do that? In the absence of a formalized legal right, that would be a conversation we could have. Right now, we can't. And all that rests on a misunderstanding of data. So the misuse of numbers in these obscure social sciences is important. One of uh, Sol's great uh, intellectual contributions, I think, is his ability to uh, analyze the origins of uh, what's uh, referred to as black culture or even the uh, Ebonics language, finding the origins in places like England. Uh, Are you familiar with his general thesis in black rednecks and white liberals? Yeah, of course. Um, So I think Black Rednecks and White Liberals is a really interesting book. There's a deeper question. So culturalism, let me write down a few things. A-V-E. So first of all, Tom Sowell is one of the most prominent advocates of what's my philosophy about most things in terms of human performance, which you could call culturalism. So stripped of a few nonsense philosophies, you know, feminist Marxism and the like, there are pretty much three explanations for why we see gaps in performance between groups. 
And by the way, you know, the Ibram Kendis and so on, again, aside, gaps in performance between groups as a political scientist are a characteristic of every society on Earth. You know, the Flemings and the Walloons and Belgium and the different groups in Nigeria, some of which have IQ scores 10 points above ours, and some of which are still living a largely tribal existence in you know, the wooded Northlands of the country and so on. I mean, there, there are massive differences in performance among people of the same race and of different races in every country I can imagine around the world. I mean, I'm thinking about the, uh, what is it, pre-Bumi, the indigenous Malaysians and then the Chinese in Malaysia. You know, the Indians there occupy a role between those two groups. And all these groups are, I suppose, racist toward each other, but the government includes representation from all of them. Racism is almost by definition not the reason for these performance gaps. So the idea that performance gaps are unusual is just wrong. It's a provincial American idea. I don't know any political scientist that takes it seriously. Some sociologists do. But leaving the academic squabbling aside, there are three explanations for why these gaps exist. One is what you could call critical theory, which is sort of the Kendi angelism I just mentioned. But the idea is that some kind of prejudice, uh, generally racial prejudice on the domestic front, I guess you could argue class prejudice more broadly, is responsible. So Ibram Kendi basically says that all gaps in performance between any groups anywhere are due to racism. Um, it's hard for me to take this explanation seriously for the reasons that I've just given if you if you look overseas at how people perform and so on. Even in the USA, I mean, for example, Asians earn 30% more than whites do. And it, it's hard to say, well, that's because this is an institutionally Korean supremacist system. But the crit model, it, it kind of makes sense if you apply it to whites and blacks. It's essentially that all gaps are due to racism, some form of hidden, sophisticated racism. The hereditarian model is a, a, a bit clearer. It's the oldest of these models. And it is essentially the argument that gaps in performance between groups are due to genetic differences. So the reason that Asians score higher on IQ tests than whites who score more highly than blacks who perform about equally with Hispanics who outscore natives is genetic differences, that there are GWAS style predictors of intelligence and that those vary among population groups. That's hereditarianism. Um, and like I said, this is kind of the simplest of these theories. I mean, the reason there are more black guys in the NBA is that black guys jump a little bit higher. The third theory of group performance has fallen out of fashion for some reason, but to me is by far the most persuasive. And it's called culturalism. And the idea is that there may be some 4% genetic differences between groups, but these tend to vary all over the board. For example, whites have slightly better vision than blacks. I, I see no reason that if you're looking at basketball, that wouldn't counter being able to jump one inch higher. You know, there, there's this broad range of abilities among people, and the differences seem to be generally tiny. There's a famous, this is just a sideline that's kind of funny, but there's a famous study in the Journal of Urology where they actually measured the penises of something like 2,000 men. They wanted to test whether stereotypes about, forgive me, dick size were real. And what they found was hilarious. First of all, all the penises were on average about five inches long. And secondarily, there were no massive racial group differences. I think black guys on average were like 5.8 inches. Whites were like 5.6. Asians were like 5.3. So like there, were, there was a little gap there. But the, the writer of the study, who was a woman, 
very politely said men might, might want to focus more on oral sex and physical health than on directly competing. The, the racial gaps are little. These are, these are all pretty much in the same range. And that, that's my opinion on the genetic stuff. I don't think the racial, the racism stuff is really worth taking seriously in a lot of situations. I, I, I can't imagine that the reason East Indians outperform whites is that society displays some kind of subtle bias against whites and toward East Indians. But the culturalist perspective is simply that on average in each group, there are differing percentages of people with different interests and abilities and levels of training as the result of a large number of different things. I mean, what the founder culture was. So the founder culture for black Americans came from the medieval level warrior societies of Central Africa. It was the iron using tribal city states that were defeated by the Ashanti and the Dahomey and they were shipped over here, basically. So that's that's the baseline. Some literacy, not much. Um, fighter cultures, generally the males were the people that came here. Then there's encounter culture, which is the group of people that you run into in your new space. And this is where we're going to get into black rednecks and white liberals seriously for a minute or two. Then there are kind of structural variables that don't have anything to do with racism. So I think something that really impacted the black community is that when we got to the north, we got to the north at almost exactly the same, the same time northern <laughs> cities moved to the left and stopped kind of kicking the white trash out of the Irish and the Italians, if you will. So there, there'd been brutal anti-crime policies for a long time in New York or Providence, like paddy wagon is a term that has a genesis. And that stopped when black people got there. So, I mean, you saw black migrants arrive from the South with a culture that was at least on par with the Irish migrants. At the same time, people stopped enforcing the law. So you saw Cloward, Piven, welfare, if you're familiar with that. Checks started coming out early in the 1970s. You couldn't have a man in the house to receive what at the time was a pretty good supplement of money. And so you saw black families collapse for this reason that had nothing to do with racism, nothing to do with genes. Uh, between 1945 and 1985, the black illegitimacy rate went from about 10% to about 70%. So that's that's culturalism or that systems theory. Like there are all these things that contribute to this founder culture, encounter culture, variables other than prejudice. You'd have to throw in past bias. I mean, I frankly assume Southern rednecks and blacks hated each other. There's a great deal of black and back and forth violence with them getting the better of it. So how does that does that contribute to your attitude toward whites? which we certainly see there's a large amount of black on white crime that's never discussed. So all of this makes the culture that you have at a given time. So I, I'm a culturalist. I mean, there might be 2% potential IQ differences caused by genes or racism or something. But I think when you look at like levels of black crime in Baltimore, like that's something as the mayor of Baltimore, I think I could reduce that by 90% if I were given full range to do so. The odds of that happening, given the methods involved and so on are zero, like 0.0%. But I think that those cultural or systemic variables are pretty key and kind of back on track. I mean, Black Rednecks is just soul explaining culturalism. And he says this, a very important point that Black leaders like this kind of trendy idea that Black culture came from Africa and that specifically it came from the great powers of Africa that sometimes fought the British about evenly and that had the, the cool kente cloth and the, the, the dope hats. I mean, like the, the Ashanti and the Benin and so on. And he points out that there, there's no evidence for this at all. Like those are actually the enemies of the people that became black Americans who beat us and sent us over here. Like there's very little, I mean, blunt but real, there's very little of the language of those groups in AAVE, African-American vernacular English. 
And doing a basic, obvious analysis that I've never seen anyone else do, he compares about 200 words in white trash dialect, like Scottish Highland redneck dialect, with African-American vernacular English. And he actually finds the overlap there is like 98.6%. That these two groups lived next to one another and fought each other for 200 years and began to behave very similarly. And rednecks, quote unquote, today still have a fairly high rate of violence, so on. But unlike their white competitors, Southern Blacks migrated to the North to seek out specific jobs in what were becoming majority Black cities. So you took a culture that would have been you know, 90% as problematic had Appalachian whites brought it up, but you took it in massive numbers to Detroit, Memphis, cities like that, and that became urban slum culture. Urban slum culture was Black, ex-white, redneck culture transplanted to cities where the law was no longer followed. And it, it's a really innovative explanation. I don't know whether it's entirely true, but it's hard not to see a lot of that. I mean, if you're on a bus with a bunch of hood black dudes, I mean, the, the language used, I'm finna get mines, is exactly what you would hear in regions of Appalachia where I travel, where I hunt or something like that. So it seems a lot more plausible that that is the inspirator for violent urban culture, then that those characteristics somehow came here from long ago African populations. I love that uh, you brought up a uh, Cloward and Piven. Did you ever see Francis uh, Fox Piven debating Thomas Sowell? No, I pay a lot of money to see that though. No, I, what what was her side of the debate? I mean, that so again she is was, an anointed policy we know didn't work. Yeah, so uh, she was saying, well, uh, it was these affirmative action policies that black Americans fought for for so long. And he interrupts her. He goes, no, damn it. That's the ideas that you put in the mouths of black Americans. Blacks have never uh, more than 30 percent supported A, B and C policy. She is the perfect person for, <clears throat> excuse me, for the anointed vision. I mean, every single shortcoming, we are just like two pieces of legislation and a few tax points away from just uh, having a solution. Speaking of the word solution, one of my uh, favorite uh, quotes from him, I want to say it's in a conflict of visions where he mentions that there are no solutions, only trade-offs. I oh, can't yeah. find the page because I had forgotten that. What, uh, what does that mean? There are no solutions, only uh, trade-offs. Well, I, th I think that I'm glad you brought that up, because even as versus the idea of the anointed versus the tragic vision, that may be Sol's best quote on leadership. That may be the best quote on leadership I've ever heard, actually. Um, what it means is that you can't directly solve problems, excuse me, without externalities that are massively negative. And this is something people forget. When you look at leaders, especially young, innovative, you know, junior executives or just tenured faculty, there's a desire to take this on and knock out this problem. Like we're going to solve world hunger. And I used to feel this way. I mean, I've, I've volunteered with Habitat for Humanity, the human rights campaign, just so on down the line. I actually love doing good works. We just ran a GoFundMe page for a major healthcare procedure through my, my Twitter and my social. Um, but I think that as you get older, you understand that there's no such thing as just solving a problem without externalities. What you're generally doing is sacrificing a massive amount of money or freedom or something else to resolve the issue. And Sol in his books, and yeah, it is a conflict of visions, I believe, explains how this works in practice. So one of the things is airline safety. Like in the 70s and 80s, we honestly used to have very poor airline safety. 
Um, you know, there was a situation where a baby was ripped out of his mother's arms. His mother, by the way, is holding a drink. Like, she's a nice lady. It's minimizing most of the stories. But this is when you could drink on, well, you still drink on planes. This is when you drink a lot on planes. So, I mean, you imagine this where you have the, the ashtrays and the armrests and, you know, everyone in the rows holding a martini glass. And you got a baby just under your arm. This is old school aviation. People are, like hooking up in the bathroom. The pilot is, you know, sitting up there singing. This, this is business travel at this point. And the, they hit some turbulent air and people get hurt. Like someone falls down, injures their leg. And the baby, this is the important point, is ripped out of the mother's arms thrown across, hits the cabin door, which at that time is old school hardwood, and is killed. I assume horribly. Head shattered, probably blood and brains on the ground. And the response to this is, well, we're going to fix up a lot of this. We're no none of these antics. But even at the first level, even if you cut drinking on planes by half, um, even if you made everyone sit down the entire flight, you're massively inconveniencing hundreds of millions of people. So, I mean, I would say you can put a dollar value on that, maybe $50 per person. And you could ask whether the loss of one life every 10 years, valued at the usual $10 million by the actuaries, whether that is worth that move. That sounds cold and brutal, but I mean, we don't harden the tires of every car or lower the speed limit every time someone's killed in an auto wreck. So even at that first level, do you make this massive move? Do you remove the social amenities on planes? Do you keep the seatbelt sign fought? on the entire flight affecting people with bladder issues do do all this in response to one death but we didn't just do this i mean we mandated the purchase of seats for infants we mandated strap downs which can themselves be quite dangerous for infants i believe you have to use a sort of baby seat on a plane although they give it to you i don't know i haven't flown with an infant but i mean all of this stuff was done in response to the situation that killed one person that hurt one person and soul points out that the total cost of it was something like 1.8 billion not massive, but pretty high. I mean, enough to affect the ticket of everyone flying on that airline by about $25, let's say, for the next couple of years down the road. And he makes the obvious point that if even a thousand people didn't fly because of that, that led to one death. And obviously, it's it would be more people than that. Like if all tickets increased by dollar amount X, more than $20, more than 20 years ago, and you had to buy separate seats for infants, doubling the cost of your flight, and you are no longer allowed to do certain things and the flight becomes much more unpleasant. I think we've all flown modern commercial, you know, non-first class air. Tens of thousands of people were probably like, fuck it, I'm going to drive. The issue with this is that it's much more dangerous to drive than to fly. The, the range of negative externalities has just skyrocketed sharply upward. So in reality, saving the life of the next baby, and we've never had a baby killed like that again, Although I will note we had never previously had a baby killed like that. It was an unusual freak accident. But saving the life of the next baby probably cost 15, 20 lives. And that's what is meant by there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Do you, when you see the brain spattered against the bulkhead, do you make some basic changes like not allowing mothers with babies, for example, to consume alcohol or monitoring that row very closely? I mean, there's certainly things I would do. You don't want that to happen. But do, and again, I've read different stories on this. I don't know, no one's saying the mother was drunk or anything like that. We don't know the details of the case. But like, do you do something like that? Or do you, on the other hand, change everything about the plane and raise the price of the tickets and kill a bunch of people? And I think a lot of people move toward option two. They're saying, I'm going to permanently fix this issue. And that may not be the best way to go about this. So that, that's Soul's point. 
Yeah, I have uh, seen a uh, n number of uh, examples of this. Uh, one is uh, to say that, well, uh, what we have are people that earn uh, low amounts of money. The way we solve this issue is we uh, raise the minimum wage. This way, no one's able uh, to uh, pay someone so little. Well, it turns out this increases the likelihood of someone never getting a job opportunity in the first place until they're much older, and then they're less desirable. And since they never got their foot in the door to get on the job skills, it's harder for them when they get older to compete with other people. So they have fewer skills. They have less money. Because it's more expensive, people like Amazon and Walmart could easily grow. Smaller businesses can't compete. So now consumers have less options. Now employees have less places to go. So the, the more you raise these hurdles without ever considering the secondary costs, it, it's just uh, such an important uh, introduction into uh, how you can start to, to, to analyze things. Yep. There is another book titled Applied Economics, Thinking Beyond Stage One, where Sol says, the voters' political decisions involve having a minute influence on policies which affect many other people, while economic decision-making is about having a major effect on one's own personal well-being. My understanding here is that he's saying, look, people are ignorant about politics, but it's rational for them to do so because you could spend thousands of hours and maybe understand agricultural subsidies, but you're still going to get a one in 100 million vote. And that's not really going to tip. And it, even if your guy wins because of your vote, he's probably a liar. So people don't really get uh, involved uh, uh, politically. Do you, what do you think about this as a potential explanation? Uh, rational, uh, this sort of rational irrationality about why uh, the average person who might say, I love politics, is still uh, very ignorant uh, empirically. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, I will say just as the last line, I, I feel kind of guilty about my description of the the mom and the the previous scenario, like accounts of, you know, whether all the people on this plane were drinking and so on vary from what I've seen. So no one's blaming her for this this terrible accident. The My point is just the the overreaction damaged a lot of people. Um, so but moving on, because that's pretty much it. Um, the, the thing about voting, I think that your point, your analysis is good. Voting is not actually, and this is kind of taboo for political scientists to say, but voting is actually an irrational waste of time most of the time, um, to some extent. You are very, very unlikely to sway the result of an election by your vote. Even when people talk about very close, intense races and so on, Bush v. Gore, I mean, the margin, and you're talking about one state, not one of our three biggest, I mean, the margin was 500 votes before they got into the chads. There's a very, very little chance you personally are going to impact an election. I vote as a kind of rote civic duty in the way I, I go to church on Christmas and Easter. And uh, most political scientists I know don't vote at all, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I think that when you're saying that it's rational not to engage too much with the issues, I, I think that's probably correct. The one issue with that, though, is that in understanding what's going on in the world also impacts almost literally everything else you do. So, for example, if you invest, knowing that Jim Cramer is almost always wrong or that climate change is not going to destroy the world, but that there are things people are going to do in response. So I'm investing in seawall companies, that kind of thing. I mean, that, that's all very useful. So, I mean, that would require reading up on climate change or reading up on the failures of the media, the business media, so on. So, I mean, I, I've read both of those books recently and they were fascinating. 
And the, the same thing really with anything else. Um, just to minimize personal fear, you know, you might be interested in looking at the numbers on Black Lives Matter on the left, how many people actually are killed by police officers, or the equivalent on the right, how many you know, white women are raped to death by gangs of black men or illegal immigrants. And when you realize that the number on both sides is 18 or something like that, there's going to be a dramatic effect on your personal mental health. So I encourage people to get as much knowledge as possible. I mean, you, you want to be aware that you generally shouldn't be afraid most of the time. You want to be, you know, able to do other things like make money in the market. You want to be able to judge media and talk trash when you watch pol political or sports media with your friends. But, I mean, you want to be able to vote in local elections. I mean, the, a lot of these elections where things are critical are, for example, school board races, where an accurate understanding of the lies on both the left and the right about CRT could help you pick a candidate and where the winning candidate is going to get 12 votes. I mean, so there, there's a lot to be said about gaining knowledge. But when it comes to voting in national races, I mean, when when people criticize individuals for just picking the donkey or the elephant or not really going deep into the issues that are being discussed, Ukraine. Yeah, that, that's likely a rational choice, because quite frankly, whether Ukraine or Russia wins is going to have no impact on your life whatsoever. I mean, in the, at the presidential level, I mean, whether Kamala Harris or Ron DeSantis, I think Biden and Trump are both at that level of doddering where they could do real damage. But whether Kamala Harris or Ron DeSantis wins in most ways, if you're in an independent state with a strong governor, isn't going to affect your life very much. So people behave appropriately. They, they take the citizenship duty. They walk into the booth. They spend four hours on it. But no, I mean, people don't deeply prepare themselves for elections. And that's because we're not a city state of 50,000 people. I mean, they're close to 400 million Americans. So wrote a book called Knowledge and Decisions. Tell me what uh, what you think this means, and if uh, and I hope I'm not uh, repeating myself from uh, the anointed book, but I think this is a different analysis. He says the use of knowledge in decision making processes affecting social well being depends not only on the supply of ideas, which are usually abundant, but on some process of authentication to weed out and reshape those ideas in the light of feedback from actual experience resulting from their application. So how do we know if something is a tradition that's been around for a thousand years? How do we know if that's the way to do things versus a new way? Is there some system uh, that uh, we could start embracing so we could make sure we find the balance between embracing tradition and uh, uh, still uh, engaging in progress? Well, yeah. I mean, so I, I think at one level, w one of the few things I've ever said at a speech that got me booed was that you need liberals and conservatives. And I think the audience was made up of a mix of liberals and conservatives and neither side liked that. So people just started sort of jokingly, but really booing and hissing. But I mean, I, the, the reality is that that's true to some extent. Like the role of the conservative is to defend and maintain working and functional traditions. And the role of the liberal is to propose new, somewhat better ideas. And both of these are obviously essential. I mean, you know, 1500s Norman England was a very functional society, produced noble knights, some of the most beautiful art we've ever seen. But at the same time, I don't think anyone today would say that there were no ways to improve on that society with its hereditary semi-absolute monarch and so on down the line. I mean, the average, the GDP per capita is probably on the order of $1,000. Almost everyone was a peasant farmer and tapeworms were a real issue. So th that duality is necessary. 
to some extent. The I tend to lean more toward the conservative side because most new ideas or new mutations are very bad. So, I mean, generally, when the intelligent left suggests an idea, like, why don't we defund the police and transfer that money to social workers? It's apparent for a series of logical reasons that this idea is bad and why this idea is bad. And the goal of the kind of quantitative, serious business, military, agricultural, so on, right, has to be to smack that idea down, knock it off the stage, move on. People often ask, has the left ever lost a battle in the culture war? Yeah, they lose almost all of the battles in the culture war, actually. The, the only problem is that the media is so complicit with the political left that then they're immediately memory hold. But I mean, anything from the teaching of hard gender ideology to kids, which is about to become a defeat, at least in the heartland of the USA, to defunding the police, where you now have Mr. Biden standing on stage saying, we support refunding the police at a higher level than ever before. All of those were left block cultural and political defeats. So that's that's the role of the right saying, no, we've run the models. You're not moving society forward doing this. Even the idea that masking should become a permanent thing after COVID is something that's supported by more than 40% of left-wingers. It's absolutely not going to be tolerated by sort of the business class. The mainstream right has stopped that. So that is a culture war defeat. Uh, you might see a few isolated colleges, you know, putting masks on the poor little bastards for a year or two, but it, that's not going to be what they would have liked it to be, which is what you see if you do business in Singapore or Hong Kong people walking around with the cups on their face for six months out of the year. So the, the goal of the left is to propose new ideas, the cup on your face. The goal of the right is to strike down the bad ones. But obviously there are good left-wing ideas. I mean, so for example, I don't think gay marriage is something that the mainstream right is going to attempt to strike down again. Um, I certainly would not be part of that campaign. I don't think that there's much to gain from it I mean, to the extent that I lean libertarian, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I think the state should be involved in marriage in the first place, but that's, that is not a thing that appeals much to me or that would improve life for my countrymen, you know? So every now and then they get one right and we move forward. What Soul is saying, I think, and Knowledge and Decisions is one of the books I've only read once. It's not a book I've engaged in at great length, but yeah, I mean, he, he's obviously saying that there has to be a way to look at or to review the thousands or the millions of ideas out there that are taken seriously across the philosophies, across the religions, across the political perspectives, and decide which ones have worked and which ones to pursue going forward. I mean, looking at this from a center-right perspective in the sense of when we should change what we already have, my comment would be that it's fairly easy to review how effective systems are to some extent. How content do most people say they are with the current constitution? How happy are most people in traditional marriages and so on? I mean, if you ask people about features of their marriage, I mean, this is something that happened during the feminist movement in the 70s, which do people dislike? And I mean, when that actually occurred, women strongly opposed the idea that they weren't allowed to do things without their husband's consent. So until 1973, as crazy as this sounds, you needed your husband's formal signature on two documents to take out a credit card as a woman. I believe even men needed their wife to consent for certain kinds of credit, certain sorts of loan arrangements. And couples did not like this, especially women, who I'm sure were disadvantaged. So that, that was changed. The law was changed. Banks gradually dropped this policy. You saw some young, newer banks spring up that didn't require this, and that was, that was removed. 
So I, I think that feedback from intelligent people about which ideas work and which ideas don't is still the best way to determine which ideas are successful. Um, this actually gets into all the books we've been talking about so far, in fact, because I, again, am a tragic vision guy. I think that the best process of review is broadly sourced, national, public, what I'm, I'm grappling for a word here, but involving all of the people, capitalist might be the word. Uh, someone with the vision of the anointed would probably say that the best review of whether a policy worked is a small panel from the anointed. Um, I, I don't I don't think that's the case. And to give an example of this in practice, are you familiar with Rotten Tomatoes, the film viewing website? One of the there's a weird phenomenon that we're seeing on RT right now, especially when it comes to quote unquote woke content, where a whole community of Wikipedia style movie nerds has grown up around Rotten Tomatoes. My partner is in it. And every time a movie comes out, thousands of people will watch either the film or the bootleg and they will brutally review it, good or bad, and they will upload that review within a day. And that the Rotten Tomatoes is known for that. Films have a million reviews. And the audience scores range from like 6% to 100%. The audience scores are almost entirely accurate, in my opinion. I fall within five points of every audience score for a movie that I've watched recently, which is what you'd expect with a with source pool of a million. That's not even mm -hmm. a random sample. That's just a population. You know, I mean, so the other, the flip side, though, is that Rotten Tomatoes still uses another metric, which is the 150 film review columns in the country in major publications. And they are always wrong. There's always an incredible dichotomy between the film reviewer's standard and the audience's standard. So with the, the recent conservative documentary, What is a Woman? Which is hilarious, which I strongly recommend watching, whether you're cheering for Matt Walsh or his opponents, it's just funny. It's him talking to gender experts, some of whom are quite witty themselves, about these basic questions like, do you think a person with a vagina is a female? And it's, it's laugh out loud hilarious. I think Walsh, Walsh gets the better of the exchanges. But it's obviously very politically incorrect. So if you go to Rotten Tomatoes, audience score for what is a woman, I think, is 93%. Critics score is like 12% or something, but there are only three critics. I mean, so you see the difference between the anointed review, where a small number of people are taking into account what they must say, current social mores, Will they lose their job? So on. And then the audience score were a million people. And I would bet this pool includes many of the same critics under pseudonymous Twitter style handles is, is giving their actual opinion. So I think that when we judge ideas, one, you simply ask pollster style questions about a, pra a praxis or a process or a situation like marriage and see what people say. But two, I think that the larger the group of respondents you have and the more representative it is, the better. So this, I guess, is an idea that I share with Soul, and I may be even extending a little bit from Soul. Knowledge rests within the body of the intelligent people. Knowledge isn't some unique thing that's contained within a hidden ivory tower elite at all. When you look at the group of people, I mentioned basketball or golf or the barbershop earlier. When you look at the group of grown men and the occasional woman that would be in those situations, and they're obviously female equivalents all over the board, but I mean, like a local lawyer, a farmer, a deacon at a popular black church. I mean, a school teacher, a coach. I mean, it's a group of quite intelligent people sharing positions. A couple salesmen, 
a criminal. I mean, it's a group of people that are that have different takes on life, and they're all IQ 105 plus that have things to say. And there are hundreds of rooms like that, hundreds of these local salons around the country and around the world. And I think that the sum total of intelligence in those local salons is dramatically larger than the sum total of intelligence within a few isolated forums that produce media, for example. Like there, there is more intelligence in the entire city of Frankfurt's Chamber of Commerce than there is in one academic department at my university. And I'm not insulting either of those, but it just seems self-evident. I mean, one includes the mayor, the chief of police, so on down the line. But we've been trained to look at the second as kind of the source of real knowledge. And I, I think that's a problem. A couple uh, more of my uh, favorite soul quotes. It's funny you mentioned gay marriage, so I I just uh, had to get this one. This is from Looking for That Elusive Escalator to Success. He says, the very same people who say that government has no right to interfere with sexual activity between consenting adults believe that the government has every right to interfere with economic activity between consenting adults. It's just those quick one-liners that I love uh, from Soul. And then I know we're uh, running up on uh, the uh, clock here. Thank you so much for your time. No, sure. um, and then uh, in uh, Basic Economics, he says, in short, people tend to do more for their own benefit than for the benefit of others. However unattractive greed may be, it is likely to move food much faster, saving more lives. So what he does here is he says, this is something that applies to people, not businessmen, not whites, not politicians. So whether it's Bernie Sanders or Jeff Bezos or your neighbor, human beings are constantly looking to profit, even if it's psychic profit. Even if there's no money involved, people are looking to increase the benefits and decrease the costs. So one of the primary arguments uh, in favor of doing something is, well, this or that shouldn't be for profit or this should be done by the public. All you're changing are the incentives. It's the same race of people, uh, whether uh, whether uh, Bernie Sanders has a job in the public sector or the private sector, or he's in a, quote, nonprofit. In all of these situations, the incentives change, but it's still human beings trying to increase the amount of profit they have. That's why it's no surprise that when you get someone like Fauci, a public servant, didn't feel the need to apologize after uh, he told everyone to wear masks and then stop wearing masks when he went on 60 Minutes and said masks are useless. And then he came out and said masks should more or less be mandatory. So the public servant myth that Sol refutes, just using economics, he doesn't even get political about it, but he takes universal truths and applies them consistently. So those are just so many of my uh, other favorite ones. Now, when it comes to other things you've learned from Thomas Sowell, any uh, final thoughts? Well, I'll comment on that uh, that point you made first. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a very critical point because when we talk about religious divines, for example, and we talk about people like Fauci, who's one of my least favorite public figures in the, the modern era, there's there's a tendency to describe these people as well. At least they're not greedy. At least they're they're self they're not self serving. At least they they care. And I, I think that's a wild misunderstanding of human nature. People who go into power politics care about power or about other people's money. They don't care about their money. But that's not more honorable. 
I mean, Fauci makes $500,000 a year. So if Fauci is primarily motivated by a high salary taken from others or by the power to make an entire nation knuckle under and walk around with diapers on their face, that doesn't necessarily make him a better person. In fact, I'd say the reverse than me being motivated by the desire to pick up a few million a year in the markets. That I mean, that, that argument is nonsensical. It reminds me of the Brahmin Kshatriya conflict in India. I was talking to a good buddy of mine who's East Indian once. And I was looking at like the hierarchy of classes and it's the the top three are essentially the priests and writers, the warriors and the wealthy merchants. And those three have competed about equally in every society throughout history. So I, I said, who decided to rank them one, two and three? And he was like, well, the priests wrote the books. So they put themselves first and they kind of flipped a coin for the next one. And it, it's a joke, but it's pretty much accurate. Like the people saying that public service is uniquely honorable are the people writing you know, the, the latest edition of Hagelman's MPA. They're writing the public service textbook. So, I mean, that that's an, an idea. I agree with Saul that it's, it's not a realistic idea. If you look at the things that bureaucrats compete for, I mean, in Britain, it used to be a knighthood. Over here, it's the lifelong pension. I mean, I have great, great respect for our soldiers. But if you ever talk to one of the military boys who's on about year 19, I mean, their, their number one motivator might not be defending the country. It might be getting that last year in and then, cashing out at 105% of what, what you made while on the forces. And nothing wrong with that. You at least did an honorable thing for much of your life there. But there are clear motivations, and whatever that pension payout figure would be, varies, I'm sure. But there are clear motivations for why people are doing what they're doing in every field, not just in, you know, filthy business. So I, I think that's absolutely correct. One of the big problems with the bureaucratic NGO sector, actually, is that there's no equivalent of profit. That's a sentence that's actually worth repeating. There's no equivalent of profit. So as a ruthless, amoral, greedy businessman, it's pretty easy to see how good I'm doing and whether people should invest with me if I go into that business or whatever. How much money did I make? I mean, last year, how many books did I sell? If you're thinking about publishing me as Harper instead of Regnery or whatever the next publisher would be. Um, there, there are these quantitative metrics. Thank you. I see that book up on the screen. Taboo. Still a, still a bestseller. I don't think we're doing pushing them out on a day-to-day -day basis at that level anymore. But I mean, just those are the metrics. But what is the metric for a charity? What is the metric for Fauci? Is it how many people died? Because there's so many ways to dodge around that. What they'll say invariably is it would be even more if we hadn't implemented my lockdown policy, so on. So Stage general, four, the response. Yeah, I'm sorry? It's stage four, the response from Vision. Oh, of yeah, Vino. yeah. Oh, exactly. Like, Great. Thank God we did this or else imagine how many people would have died. Well, we, we saw that with the COVID catechism, right? Where like people were, once we saw the vaccines really didn't work. Now, I, I will say they stopped severe illness. They stopped death. If you're an elderly person, go get vaccinated. But like they didn't work in the sense of stopping you from getting COVID and getting very sick, which was the promise. Once we saw this, we started seeing the COVID catechism where people would come out and say, yeah, I got COVID again, despite being vaccinated. But thank God for, you know, my two shots and then my three boosters and Paxilovid, because otherwise this could hypothetically have been much worse. And it was just pure Tom soul, like the entire thing. Although, again, you're probably healthier than you would have been, but the entire thing fell apart. But here's what you're saying. It would have been dramatically more of a disaster. So, yes, that, that was Fauci's entire pitch. That's what Burks said in every one of these cases. The reality, though, is that there's no way to know whether that's true or not. So it's, in fact, very hard to hold bureaucrats to any reasonable standard. So I, in fact, rank the bureaucrat as one of the lowest forms of power player life. 
Um, the motivation isn't their own honest money. It's either taking your money or having power over you. And there's no real way to hold them accountable. And that's that's something that we need to work on. Even in academia, we can be held accountable. What's your number of publications? People in that general free-flowing bureaucratic space, it's almost impossible. And that that really is an issue for society. I think that the growth of mass bureaucracy actually is a major problem. It's one of the major characteristics of empires on decline. If you look at, for example, education or medicine over the past 50 years, one of the things that's almost lost in the whole debate about why does this shit cost so much? You know, is it corporate greed? You know, is it, is it failure of the clientele to really demand a product or to seek out alternatives? You know, one of the things that's lost in this whole conversation is just that the support staff in those areas has grown something crazy like 5,000%. So in the schools, we've seen like a 6% increase in student numbers, 12% increase in teachers, and multiple 100% increase in bureaucrats overseeing Greek life and admissions, mental health, so on down the line. Um, so that is, it's hard to track and I don't see much purpose to it. That turned into kind of a sideline rant, but it's an issue. Yeah, and one more thing on the uh, black rednecks and white liberals, because I see this as uh, such good news. But of course, when you give people good news, it takes away a large amount of meaning that uh, that, that they have. Um, so it's not that, well, blacks are inferior or blacks just need to sit around and wait for whites to stop being so racist uh, or else you guys got nowhere to go. Um, it seems like if I had to summarize, they had originally embraced sort of the capital theory of build your skills and make exchanges. And now, uh, much like the Japanese did in America yeah. and uh, had higher incomes, and now it seems much more of the political theory. We have to get involved in politics and increase wealth redistribution. It went from wealth creation to wealth redistribution. It was like, originally the mindset was Booker T. Washington, and now it's like Mark Lamont Hill, just a total hustler who I can't stand. It, it seems like this was the big shift starting, I think, Sol, the year he pinpoints in Dismantling America, I think is 1968, where they focused instead uh, from increasing their skills and uh, uh, and capital investment, same with whites, I guess, um, and now they focus on much more about, well, we got to get someone elected so it, you can sort of develop this anointed class. Is that accurate? And is there anything uh, else we could learn from uh, Sol's uh, culturalism contributions? Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite accurate. One of the things that's kind of weird is that culturalism doesn't really have a home right now. I'm I'm hoping to bring it back, supported by you know Bob Woodson, Glenn Lowry, and a lot of other powerful people in the Black and Fat Matter East Asian communities. But I mean, Amy Chua. I mean, a lot of people have made these points. Roland Fryer, but culturalism began, I think, in the modern sense as a response to the sophisticated hereditarianism of people like Arthur Jensen. In the late 1950s and 60s, you started to see a lot of what had previously been almost, you know, black guy and Republican yelling at each other in the social science journals, getting formalized into coherent theories. So Arthur Jensen studied young children in poor areas where different groups were represented around the country and came to the conclusion, which no one really disputes, that there are differences in tested IQ between members of different groups. At the time, I think blacks were very low, about a 78 uh, many white groups were well under 100 as well. That's that's the white norm. So the idea became there might be genetic barriers here that are going to prevent these kids from accomplishing certain things. And Soul and others started pointing out that that doesn't seem likely to be true. 
Uh, by the time Soul reached his peak when he was doing most of his writing, the black IQ had risen to about 85, 86, which is what uh, Charles Murray admitted it was in the bell curve. I will tell you right now it's 91 or 92. Uh, there's considerable fluidity with IQ in a, in a complex way that no one really understands. But if you look at Murray's latest book, uh, Facing Reality, he just notes in passing without really saying much about this, that his black IQ estimate is 91. His Hispanics IQ estimate has gotten up to 93. So these minority IQs of 70, I mean, or something in, in the distant past. But Sol said, well, I don't think that's true. I mean, we're seeing these jumps from 78 to 92. There, there's obvious, whether or not there's a three-point gap, let, let's say even say a max five-point gap in the end with everything adjusted for, there's clearly a massive role for culture here. So let's look at what's needed. And he starts talking about some of the things we still talk about today, father present in black communities in the era of the welfare state. We need to be utterly honest about that. Um, number of books in the home. We find that black parents, for whatever reason, don't read to their kids in the same way that white parents do. Uh, the one exception is Southern white Appalachian parents who test identically to black parents. Average IQ for whites in West Virginia, 92.5. Um, so books in the home, dad, what grades do your parents demand? Even barely literate Asian families demand A's in school. Um, that's one of the most fascinating things I've stumbled across. Uh, what's the number of hours of television you watch in a day? How much do you study every day? So Sol pointed out, like, look, there's no genetic way that an IQ is going to jump from 80 to 93 in 15 years. And there's not. So we need to look at what's happening, what's predicting this. And so that's where the culturalist model comes from. That's been advocated for by Walter Williams, John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry. I mean, dozens of just heavyweights in the game. Uh, Dickens and Flynn, Nisbet over on the hard psychometric side. The problem is that right now the political left is moved a long way away from John McWhorter and Dickens and Flynn, yeah. who would be considered heretics today. So culturalism doesn't really have a natural home. I mean, now it's kind of on the center right. I'd say most American Enterprise Institute guys are culturalists. Uh, Murray himself may be one. He's never really said whether he's a cult or a hereditarian. But, and although I have my suspicions, I guess, although I like the guy. But I mean, this is problematic. To Oh, yeah. This, the reason for this is that the modern left is at least pretending to believe that things like IQ and race don't exist at all. So, I mean, when you say my race needs to engage in X tactics to improve IQ, um, you know, a hereditarian would say, well, that sounds like the old debate. Yeah, try it out. Let's compete with each other in the papers. But a leftist today would say, well, no, your race doesn't exist and IQ is not real. So you're kind of seeing an odd reluctance to listen to what was traditionally the most influential of these paradigms. It's kind of funny, but I guess there's nothing to do but just keep saying obvious facts. I mean, at a level, this is Galileo shit. Like, it still moves. Like, if you study for tests, you'll do better on them. I mean, it's one of the most replicated conclusions in the social sciences, and you can't make it go away by not replicating it. This happens all the time, by the way. Um, I mean, like, people will ask me, like I mentioned talking to Graham or Keto, who are intelligent men, and one of the things they would say is, well, other than you and Fryer, why are there no scientific papers that say this? And the answer is because there are very few scientists that are on the center right and they're going to study this. Like it's, you, they're not trying to get fired. You know, I mean, so it's just, if you take a paper, I read a paper recently that looks at whether there's a connection between police stops and miscarriages. So like this paper looks at, they find that in neighborhoods with high police activity, there are higher rates of miscarriage for black women. Um, 
There are there are three major problems with this. I'll ask. Can you guess what they are? So I'm trying to think of uh, I'm going back to my Roland Fryer here. So <clears throat> as far as what would cause more police means that there are more uh, conflicts settled violently. More violence is leads to an increase in anxiety. Therefore, yes. miscarriages are more likely to occur. Second. Uh, oh, okay, like a random intelligent guy from a different scientific field figured out the... Yeah, okay, it took 10 seconds. Go on, there's more. Second one would be uh, police uh, feel like they'll have more leeway if someone uh, cannot uh, pay a lot of money for a lawyer and take them to court, which takes the uh, policeman away from his job for a day. Therefore, he's more likely to patrol lower-income neighborhoods because there'll uh, be less resistance. And lower income people are less likely to have nutritious foods, which makes them less healthy, which increases the likelihood of miscarriage. And then yes, good. Okay, yeah. I mean, so that okay. that took that took a minute. Well done, sir. No, I mean that's that's essentially correct. Yeah, I mean, and you, it's good that you did get the one that involves potential police abuse. Like, I mean, I could see some bad cop saying, hey, "Who are these bitches going to tell after you know a rough arrest?" But realistically, yeah, the, the two things that they didn't adjust for are the fact that people in violent slum areas are different behaviorally from people in upper middle class suburbs. So to see how much of a role stress overall played, you'd have to adjust for diet, exercise, sexual activity, drugs and alcohol, obesity, all that stuff. They don't adjust for any of it. And you'd also have to look at the source of the stress, which would be a secondary question. Like, do you attribute this primarily to policing, to crime, to domestic violence? What you'd probably find is that the police are in the neighborhood in response to very high levels of crime and domestic violence in the neighborhood, right? So the police themselves would be like the eighth or ninth highest cause of crime there or cause of stress there. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff is of this kind where people very definitely have a goal that they want to prove. And it's and it's not even fraud academically. Like these people did prove there's a connection between living in a high crime neighborhood and miscarriages. It's a good paper. The problem is that the police element, the racism element is totally disproven unless you first adjust for diet and exercise and sexuality and obesity and crime and all these other things that they didn't or that they couldn't. And that's something you see more and more and more again. And that's why I think, you know, the the basic advice from the OG about how to skeptically approach this stuff is more useful than it's ever been. Exactly. And uh, Sol gives the great example. He goes, um, it, we could uh, look statistically. It turns out ref, uh, blacks are only 13 percent of the American population, yet they get called for fouls in the NBA about. 80, 90% of the time. This has to be the result of racism. Look at the inequality. Well, there's an important step you missed. Which percentage of people are actually involved in this activity before discussing what happens in the activity? You're saying men are 50% of the population, yet 95% of those who are uh, on death row or in prison. Therefore, we have a big sexism against men problem. Well, uh, you forgot to uh, adjust for who's actually committing the crime. So, so many good things that could decrease the amount of uh, cultural tension. I want to give you the final word, but I just have to say uh, my other uh, favorite soul quote. He says, the reason so many people misunderstand so many issues is not that these issues are so complex, but that people do not want a factual or analytical explanation that leaves them emotionally unsatisfied. That they is. want villains to hate and heroes to cheer, and they don't want explanations that don't give them that. 
That is it. That actually may be my last word. I, th I think that's a mm -hmm. great summary of Soul's work. Um, people don't want an emotionally unsatisfying factual explanation. That that sums up pretty much what the OG's been talking about for 50 years. And I, I think that's very correct. I mean, so again, when people point to things like that policing and miscarriages paper and saying and say, well, are you just denying that all this sociology has found something? I, I don't deny that. I think it's found the best thing that you could find if you're unwilling to test out any hereditarian or culturalist or anything else explanation, because those are evil, 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 and they have cooties. But to actually find truth, you've got to look at the evil, 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 and it has cooties stuff too. It's obvious to most smart people that, for example, Ibram Kendi is just wrong. That stuff with no hate for the man kind of sounds dumb. So you can either play along and act like you believe this and fall behind the Chinese, or you can follow some of the basic techniques that Tom Stoll suggested 40 years ago and maybe find the truth. And I, I think that's the last line for me. Go, go forth and do good. Maybe find the truth. The books are Hate, Crime, Hoax, and Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About by Dr. Wilfred Riley of Kentucky State University. Links will be in the description below. Dr. Riley, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me on.